Welcome to Healthcare Rounds. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and faculty associate at the Arizona State University College of Health Solutions. Here we explore the vast and rapidly evolving healthcare ecosystem with leaders across the spectrum of healthcare delivery. Our goal is to promote ideas that advance the quadruple aim, including improving the patient experience, improving the health of populations, lowering the cost of care, and attaining joy in work. Please send your questions, comments, or ideas for Healthcare Rounds to podcast at darwinresearch.com. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get started. Dr. Robert Jarvie is the Associate Chief Medical Officer for Population Health at Corwell Health West. In this role, he leads the strategy and development of population health analytics capabilities for the system, as well as the implementation of a value-based care model for underserved, high-risk patients. He is also leading at Pilot to help house at-risk patients who are experiencing homelessness. In addition to his administrative responsibilities, Dr. Jarvie practices as an internal medicine and pediatrics physician, providing primary care to high-risk patients one day a week. He has diverse experience in population health management, including implementing and leading care management teams and developing care management pathways and analytic solutions. Dr. Jarvie holds bachelor's and master's degrees from Michigan State University, an MD degree from Wayne State University, and an MBA from Grand Valley State University. So thanks so much for taking the time to, to uh, speak with me and, and be part of Healthcare Rounds. I really appreciate it, Dr. Jarvie. Um, My pleasure. So through the um, magic of podcast recording, we probably would have read a, some fancy bio in by now, but I, I always like to, to start by talking a little bit about your background and just kind of giving us a little bit about, um, about yourself and um, what your, your key interests are. So I um, am a primary care physician by background, I, internal medicine and pediatrics. So I see both adults and kids. Um, been practiced for 19 years, all of them at Spectrum Health, where I work now. And <clears throat> the first 10 years was full-time, pretty much clinical, um, was very much interested in process improvement and was invo- heavily involved in patient-centered medical home. There was a program called MyPICT, which was a state-run um, CMS grant program, and I was heavily involved in that. <clears throat> and we had a lot of really good um, improvements around team-based care when we were going through that work. That led to me moving into leadership um, and also really getting involved in analytics um, around population health. I had, as I was, for the last 10 years, I've been in leadership roles around related to population health, medical director of chronic disease management, where I rolled out our ambulatory care managers and also um, helped build care pathways. And then I was the medical director for pop health analytics. And I'm now the um, associate CMIO for population health. Along the way, I did get an an MBA program, went through an MBA program, got my MBA, which was also very helpful. So I'm going to ask you the hardest question right up front. What is population health? I mean, it's, it's one of these terms that has leaked into uh, healthcare over the last several years. And I, f- I feel like it means different things to different, um, or people use it in different definitions. So what does it mean to you when you're talking about pop health? Yeah, so it's a great question. Population health is 
for us, it's really some people kind of sometimes use the word pop, the phrase population health management um, to describe more what we are related, what we do. Um, it is not public health, which sometimes people will think those are synonymous. It's right. really looking at a defined population. So that could be um, defined as a certain payer market. It could be defined as all the population in our primary care, um, or it could be defined down to a specific high-risk population within a site that we're going to focus on. But it's defining a specific population, <clears throat> understanding what their outcomes are from a health cost and patient experience perspective, and working, so defining what the the, the outcomes are for, the, for that population, and then really focusing on identifying specific areas where we think there's actionable opportunity to improve those outcomes. So if we are looking at a population and they have very high ED utilization and we see that they're homeless, we might be looking at, you know, programs to improve getting access to housing. Um, transportation is another big one we do. Sometimes it's a matter of we see that we're not titrating them fast enough up on their medications to get them to the the highest and best regimen. And so we would maybe target them for a pharmacy engagement to help titrate those medications more quickly than we normally would in primary care. So it's just to clarify, it's kind of, it's kind of both issues. There's the social determinants issue of looking at those, that particular population, but it also could just be diabetics, patients with congestive heart failure, you know that it could be one Correct. or the other. It's not. It's not like this universal definition, but it's definitely not public health, as as you pointed out. So, as as being it's actually the, three. Uh, if I sorry, sure. it's, no, go it's ahead. actually three things that we focus on, and I completely agree with you that it's not public health. Um, but it's we focus on the medical morbidity, then the psychosocial slash behavioral health morbidity, and then the social determinants of health. It's those three things that we really try to tease out. And we find that any one of those three can be causing poor health outcomes. And more often than not, it's a combination of the three together that's leading to the really poor outcomes. So given that, what would you say, I guess this is sort of a two-part question. What are your key challenges in population health? And what are your most important areas of focus? So the key challenge for, in population health is really what there's two that have come to mind right off the top of my head. One is the change management aspect of really redesigning the care model to actually take care of population health um, patients. So getting a reimbursement model that actually is aligned with doing this work, that's usually looking at value-based risk contracts you have to do it in a carve-out way. It's really hard to do them in, in sight along with fee-for-service because you end up having your providers trying to do two completely different things simultaneously and it just doesn't work. So figuring out how to do that where you've got your value model and you've got pilot programs that are value-based that you're running to try to improve that while you're still living in a fee-for-service model and trying to ramp up your risk contracts so that you have a good enough tipping point that you can just focus on value-based care. That would be probably our biggest challenge um, we have got had some success with. The second piece is the data. The data is very disparate and it was not designed to really understand 
patients and um, understand the whole totality of what's happening to them over time. And so there's a lot of work in trying to aggregate and clean up the data so that you can see it, see what's going on in your populations and slice down to the specific areas you're interested in. So I, I recall in one of my actually first podcast interviews, so this is probably three years ago, um, I asked a question of a person in a similar role uh, uh, to yours. Do you monitor through the EHR? Do you track social determinants and some of these data points that might, you know, allow you to execute some of these initiatives that you're looking for? And he said, no. And one of the reasons why, as he said, is as physicians, you know, we want to fix things. And if there are things that we're discovering in the interview and, you know, that we, that we can't really have an impact on, um, you know, I'm not going to tell this person in this terrible neighborhood to go running at night, for example. Um, then, you know, it's almost like we're gathering information, but there's nothing that we can do to act on it. So I don't want to waste my time on that. Right. Um, yeah. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. So, what are some of the, I'd like you to comment on that, but also just, um, you know, what are, what are some of the, the data points that, or, that, that you're looking for, or where you say that you have challenges? He, that, kind of, that perspective is absolutely true um, in the sense of when we're collecting data, it's a barrier because if your SDOH is a, is a really good one, and I'll comment there, and then I'll kind of segue to some other things that we're doing. But if you're asking someone about domestic abuse, well, you better have something that you can do for them if they say yes. Otherwise, physicians do not want to, do, to add, open up that Pandora box, um, and rightfully so. So <clears throat> we have really had to work at getting what's our first stopgap solution to give them so that there's something to do. Now, that something may not be as robust as we long-term want it to be, but it's something so we can collect the data because that's really the difference between when you start thinking population health management and how we've historically practiced medicine is I want the data first to understand where are my areas of risk in my population so that I can sure. then ask what's the, how large that risk is, what is the impact on that risk to our overall health outcomes and costs. And then you can put a business model around an intervention that actually is going to be much more robust than what we could ever do if we didn't have the data. Mm -hmm. um, we have, fortunately for us, a few places where the data is really well for us when we talk about that, you know, health equity, psychosocial, those kind of things. We have had um, in our primary care offices embedded behavioral health specialists for quite some time. So we routinely screen for with, a, with PHQ-9 and GAD-7, which are screening tests for depression and anxiety, and that we had that data. So we're fortunate that way. We also, on our registration, ask those um, race, ethnicity, and language questions. So we have all of that data and we can, we've been able to pull that in. The place, um, so the clinical data and the, the race, ethnicity, and, and language data, as well as our um, behavioral health data, we're pretty good at now. It is those SDOH questions where we're slowly building them up. 
what we have done in the interim, which we can use to help us understand at a population aggregate level, what's going on is geomapped all of our patients to um, census tracts so that we can then, and then we've tied that to the CMS vulnerability index and there's Wisconsin area deprivation index, which gives us a sense of what's the risk in the census tract for SDOH those patients are living in. Can't use it at the patient level because just because you live in a high risk census tract doesn't mean that you have SDOH issues. And sure. just because you don't live in an high risk doesn't mean that you, do, you don't have them. But probabilities working out, if you have a large enough population you're looking at, you can get a sense of what is your overall burden of SDOH in a population by using those. And that's what we're using in the short term to try to get around that. So quick diversion. Um, I'm interested in, you, you mentioned embedding the behavioral health, and we talked a little bit about this in our last conversation, but talk a little bit about the the, the practical you know, application of how that works when you have embedded, because um, I think I could be wrong, but I, I, I want to say that Intermountain may have been one of the first systems <laughs> to like use that that uh, model. What are the practical applications and how do you see that as being beneficial in your primary care settings? So we have seen in our data a significant uptick in our capture of depression and anxiety that was underdiagnosed um, when we started embedding those behavioral health specialists in our office, partly because then to our last um, kind of commentary, we were screening everybody because we had an activity that we could do if we found something. So <clears throat> that screening undercover that depression and anxiety. It is extremely helpful for us having those behavioral health specialists in the office. For instance, if I have a suicidal patient, I can have that behavioral health specialist go in right there and talk to that patient and do an assessment. That would have been something that would have taken 45 minutes out of my day, but now I have somebody else doing that and I'm moving along to see other patients then wrapping back around to do the, the quick little um, tying the bow, so to speak, of what's the plan as far as the treatment. But the, the plan as far as the safety plan, everything was done by my behavioral health specialist. Likewise, for severe depression, um, moderate depression, severe moderate anxiety, we can do acute counseling of those patients. Oftentimes, patients are much more willing to come to see us at our primary care sites than they are to go to see a behavioral health specialist somewhere because the stigma for that is still present in our population. And they're much more comfortable doing it that way. From a outcomes perspective, we've been a, we've seen significant improvement in our ability to treat certain chronic conditions that have that as a comorbidity because we're getting better engagement and control of the depression and anxiety, which then leads to better engagement on their chronic conditions. Because if you have severe depression, you're not going to really care about your diabetes as much as if you don't. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. And and you don't have to um, you don't have to look at your data to. But I'm just curious, what percentage of people that come through for just regular primary care visits have a behavioral health issue that gets flagged through the, through your um, um, PSQ nine, PQS nine? So I get that. Yeah, so I, I want to say in our population as a whole, it's around 10 to 12 percent, um, which is higher than what we see in, in population level. Now, when you look at um, mental health 
in those patients who are coming in with chronic conditions, the percentage is much higher. It's like 40, 50% of the population has mm. some kind of underlying mental health condition that's going on in those frequent, like in the your high touch chronic disease patients that you're seeing every three to four months. Wow. Wow. That's, um, <clears throat> that's a, that's a pretty high percentage. Um, you mentioned, uh, a, a moment ago, kind of like the, um, the value-based initiatives and, you know, the, the challenge with that versus the fee-for-service population. Do you have, um, knowing that you have a large health plan, um, are you able to execute some of these pop health initiatives more effectively or even some value-based initiatives more effectively with those patients that you have at risk versus those that you don't? Absolutely. Having them at risk and having an integrated pair has helped us tremendously because we are able to rethink our reimbursement model. So, you know, you're looking at premium dollars coming in and then the cost to deliver the care and then what's left is your margin. Well, when you're looking at it that way, then, then things like ED utilization and inpatient utilization become cost drivers instead of revenue generators in a delivery system. And so when you're looking at patients who are high ED utilizers, you now have a business model that allows you to really create a case financially for embedding. For instance, in our high-risk medical clinic, we embedded two community health workers and the we were able to make a very solid business case for hiring those community health workers and paying them because we were going to get our money's worth out of that effort in our risk contract. If we were in fee-for-service and we did that, there's really no reimbursement method for those patients in a fee-for-service model. So it's a game changer in our ability to do that on multiple fronts where we can just rethink how we pay ourselves or, or you know, um, reimburse the resources needed to deliver the care. So, Dr. Jarvie, I'm wondering, you know, and this is kind of a philosophical question, or maybe it's a business question, but if we're going to be moving to this value-based care model, um, if we're going to be trying to achieve the triple aim or the quadruple aim, is it sort of necessary that you be under this you know, sort of where the health system is managing the risk, the Kaiser model, the Intermountain model, the Spectrum model for half a million or however many patients that you have. I mean, is it necessary to do that versus having, trying to implement, let's say an ACO um, where you don't have, you're not responsible for that risk? It's a great question. I don't know. Is it, I, I think it makes it a lot easier. I'm not sure it's necessary. I think that there are some significant benefits, for instance, in being a large independent um, physician organization where you don't have the hospital um, tied to you, but you're involved in a risk contract. What I think is necessary, though, is it can't just be an ACO. Your Medicare lives are just not enough of a tipping point of total lives for you to really change your business models to be effective. So it is necessary that we that you're pulling in Medicaid, that you're pulling in commercial into your risk contracts so that you can actually change your overall model to ref and, and still be financially solvent. If you're, if you're just doing an ACO, you're kind of tipping your toes in the water. 
but nobody in the right mind is going to stop doing fee-for-service kind of modeling of their business practices if they're just in an ACO. That makes sense. Um, and you, you brought up Medicaid. Or Medicare, or MSSPs, I should say. Right, right. MSSP, right. You, you brought up Medicaid earlier. Um, and one of the key things that I wanted to talk about today, based on our, our previous conversation, was how um, Spectrum has uh, really addressed this patient population. Some of the unique things that you've done um, in, in the Medicaid world. Talk to me a little bit about, um, about that. I think it's really important. So we have a high-risk Medicaid um, clinic that we have rolled out. And in that clinic, it's in an underserved area. It has, it's predominantly Medicaid, um, predominantly Medicaid with our payer, but we have a lot of other Medicaid that is um, also in that population. Some Medicare, a little bit of commercial, but all of it's high-risk because of the location it's in. Um, and a very, very high percentage of patients who sometimes get termed super utilizers of the ED. Um, when you look at the underlying characteristics of the population, very, very high percentage of the population has substance use disorder. Um, there's a significant um, mental health issues, severe mental health, such as schizophrenia, bipolar, um, PTSD. Trauma as, as an experience in life is throughout the population. And they have a lot of really significant chronic diseases that are uncontrolled. So they end up going to the ED regularly and not necessarily always engaging with primary care. Um, and a lot of that has to do with their SEOH factors of transportation, homelessness, other factors. So in this clinic, we really looked at what were all the other underlying factors that were driving utilization in the clinic, I mean, in, in this population. And for SEOH, we, hired two community health workers to work um, with these patients, meet them where they are in the community. They will go out to the homeless shelters and meet the patients there or go to their home and assess. Um, they will help get them to the office. Sometimes have literally walked them to our office to make sure that they actually show up for the appointment. We have a, a medical social worker that's embedded in our clinic that does behavioral health assessments, but also partners on those social needs assessments with the CHWs. And then we have a pharmacist that helps manage the chronic conditions and really titrate up those medications and educate on the use of those medications because health literacy is a huge issue in this population. So how to use the inhalers correctly, how to use injections correctly for diabetes. They'll do a lot of work there. And then really just keep talking to the patient on a regular basis, two, three times a week initially about their medicines and how are they going in adherence and what are the side effects and making sure they work through all those. We have a population health RN who leads our huddles. We do huddles three times a week where we go over all of our high-risk patients and she, she facilitates those huddles and we come up with care plans for those patients and who's going to touch them in the office to try to get them aligned. And then lastly, we have um, a, a complex care manager that we um, are in the process of rehiring. She retired recently, but helps coordinate the care on our really complex medical patients. And so we've wrapped all that around into, into these clinics, uh, into this clinic, and really focused on our high ED utilization we've had and have seen preliminarily some pretty significant declines in our total ED utilization. A separate little project that we're doing to help with this population is homelessness is a huge issue. So we've got a partnership between four different entities, um, our payer, along with Healthier Communities, which is an independent subsidiary of Spectrum Health that works on community initiatives, 
and a com community rebuilders, which is a housing um, initi initiative within Grand Rapids to run a pilot where we focus on patients who are homeless with diabetes, COPD, or CHF, and we're immediately housing them with urgent housing and then getting them permanently housed when we find out they're there and having some significant improvement in short-term metrics. We're going to be looking beginning of 2023 to see if we've had the longer-term outcomes of decreased utilization, inpatient utilization in that population. And if so, then we'll probably try to expand that with a bigger powered um, grant to see if we can you know, look at it in a more robust way, because this is a small population of 30 patients to start with. Understood. You mentioned um, in their uh, substance uh, use disorder. Um, we work with uh, our client base at, at Darwin is a lot of a lot of biotech companies. And we recently were engaged by a company that has a treatment for um, a substance use disorder. And one of the things that really shocked me just in looking at the interviews was a reticence on the part of many of the um, academic medical centers that we talked to. And no one is going to be named. Clients not going to be named. Academic medical centers not going to be named. But um, you know, this is a diversion from my interview guide here. But I'm just curious to, to know um, how you approach, uh, you know, opioid um, use. Um, what kind of initiatives that you have to, and, and maybe to comment on just why there would be some reluctance to treating this patient population when it's all over the news for the last several years. It's been, you know, in the major newspapers <clears throat> talking about like, this is a serious issue. And why, why would, you know, an, a, a very well-known academic medical center say, look, we don't want to touch this patient population. You know, um, it is an interesting thing. I think there's a, still a lot of stigma uh, that is put on this population of like they've done it to themselves. It's their fault kind of stigma, which is not accurate, but it's, but I think that that still is prevalent within our community and our society. Um, it's not helpful. It's not helpful. And I think the other piece of it is that these patients are really challenging when you have them in your clinic, not because necessarily of the substance use disorder, but I think that that's does lend to it sometimes because sometimes they're not necessarily always, um, sometimes they're intoxicated when they're coming in with whatever substance they're using. And they, so it becomes a challenge, but the broader piece of this is the underlying trauma that a lot of these patients have gone through. When you when you dig, if you show me somebody with substance use disorder, and more often than not, if you dig, you're going to find tra trauma as a as a significant component to to their health history. And so we really try to be trauma informed in the way that we're approaching it. We really try to be looking at looking at it as disorder, not addiction, not you know their fault. Sure. It is a challenge. I think the bias for that is very strong and it's very hard sometimes to, you know, in all of us, when we're dealing with those patients in the point of, in that moment to remember the underlying causes behind it. But because 
of that, I think sometimes that there, there's resonance because of the stigma. I think the other piece of it is that these patients require a different model of care than what a 15-minute fee-for-service model is really designed to deliver. Um, you as a physician by yourself trying to care for these patients is really not ideal. It, they do need an MSW. They do need the community health worker. They do need um, the pharmacist in that team. And we also have a physical therapist, I forgot to mention, to help with the chronic pain and getting them the physical therapy if there's pain issues that are going on so that we can really incorporate all of that. If you don't have that team approach and trying to do this, you, you, you can feel extremely overwhelming. Um, with When I think about these things with, the, with substance use disorder, I, I keep thinking back to the, the ACE study and I, Heard a presentation there. I wish I could remember the author, but he was the gentleman who led the ACE study out in at Kaiser. And he, one of his beginning slides was a picture, two pictures. One was a picture of a baby, and the other one was a picture of a gentleman, probably in thirties and forties, looked like he was addicted to opiates and heroin, and was, you know, passed out, slumped over on against up against a wall that in a very kind of deserted area, like bad part of town. And he's like, you know because people didn't believe in the trauma was really the issue here. And he's like, he's like, if you were to take a baby that looks like this, what would you have to do to make it end up like this? And pointing to the gentleman that was, was a heroin. Wow. And he's like, and if you think to yourself, what needs to happen to turn a child that looks this way into an addict, addict someone with an addiction who's homeless and who's, you know, basically bur burnt out, then you start to believe that trauma probably has a component um, because, and so that's how we approach it is like, who was this person? Where's their humanity? Find it, understand why they're there and then engage them around how to get some kind of control back over their lives. And I think that humanity approach is where we have a chance to make a difference, but that's not how we've necessarily approached patients who have addiction as a society. You know, I think that, um, and obviously I'm not a clinician, but I've, um, for a living, I interview people, right? So, I mean, I've done over a thousand interviews over the last five, six years. And, the you know, I keep coming back to the behavioral health component, which ties into um, the substance use disorder. And it, I just have a sense that, and I, I this is different in talking to you, but I have a sense that the predominant um, feeling, concern, is that it's an issue, that we need to deal with it. There are comorbidities, but we're not getting paid for it. So it's not top of mind. You know, it's easy enough when you're dealing with diabetes, you give them a pill, you give them a shot, you give them, you know, whatever. Um, some of these other issues, but I have, I have found, and I'm like, I've got no, no, um, skin in the game here. It's just, you know, observing from research. I have found there has been really a lack of, um, effort in the behavioral health realm, um, for whatever, for whatever reason, but I, I, I get a sense that it, it is tied to, am I going to get paid for this visit? And it's really, you know, it's disheartening. Um, and, I, and I'm getting a different sense from you that, that the spectrum is 
has initiatives, or at least that you're trying to really focus on this patient population? I think it gets back to our earlier part of the conversation when we were talking about reimbursement and can you do this in a fee-for-service model versus a, do you really have to switch and go into value-based or risk contracts or what's your tipping point of risk contracts to do that? And, right. Um, fee-for-service doesn't really reimburse mental health as well as it should. Now that's been changing recently and there's some initiatives that have been trying to do that. Um, the challenge is that it's not just mental health, it's primary care. It's not reimbursed compared to specialists the way that you would expect in a fee-for-service model. There's a lot of different things there. And when it, and when you look at a health system, you know, their, their margins, as expensive as it is, their margins are three to 5%. Right. You know, Apple's margins are what, 20, 30%, if, you know, at least, you know, that, I mean, most businesses wouldn't even try to start off at a three to 5% margin in a, in a profit world, you know, and that's where, we're, we're rocking it if we get 5% margins in health in health systems. So yeah. that that narrow margin because of the cost and because of a lot of that bureaucracy and, you know, rightfully so a lot of that bureaucracy because of what we're, we do, but it leads to inefficiencies and it leads to a significant um, cost to deliver the what the patient is looking for. I think that's led to some really um, dysfunctional kind of decision-making processes in our in our past about things like behavioral health, and you described it well. Um, but with us now being in these value risk contracts, we can really reframe that because now we're looking. You know, when we look at the data and you look at what's happening with patients with behavioral health compared with patients without behavioral health, as far as ED utilization, inpatient utilization, health outcomes, patient satisfaction. As far as even you know, provider satisfaction and caring for the patients, it's not good. You know, so putting in the right resources to address that lifts all those metrics up, um, and that it becomes a much easier uh, business proposition, and it's easier to create a business plan for resourcing those patients. But even for us, we've done a lot of that initially. I mean. We went through grants, foundation funding, other things to fund that initially until we could show the, the ROI because there is a, when you do it, you have to put them in and then you wait a year or two to see the return. It's not three months. Well, I can tell you, um, this is more than a decade ago, but I went through a divorce. I had sold my company. I had moved. I mean, if you look at one of those checklists, for all the things that are indicators yeah. of problems. Um, I was like the poster child for that in, in uh, as more than as 2005. And um, my insurance would not cover anything. Now, luckily, you know, I had the money to go for, you know, six months to pay for somebody to go see somebody. It was all cash. There was no insurance yeah. involved in that. And, and I really needed it. Now, as I said, I, ha I had the resources to be able to pay for that um, therapy. But yeah. um, in, in, in most of these cases, people, people don't. And um, trying to align that business model, and I think it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier as to whether you need to be responsible for the risk, whether you need to, to have as a health system, have those patients you know, under whether it's capitated arrangement or some kind of value-based arrangement where the incentives align 
And in a lot of cases, the incentives are, are not aligned. I, you bring up a really good point. I think that, that the incentives align and the metrics, having the metrics align for what we're looking for with outcomes. You know, I think none of us want to go back to the 1990s with the HMOs and the and where people right. were grabbing all these captivated patients, but but quality wasn't actually even measured. And there was right. no no accountability to outcomes on cost, utilization, other factors. Well, now there well, there was for cost, but not on the in the right way. Now we are a lot, you know, everything we can risk adjust, we can we can, you know, is that an appropriate versus inappropriate utilization of ED, of ED or inpatient? And there's a lot more nuance in the way that we can look at these things, which does set us up for a much better um, path. And I think I'm less concerned about any given funding model per se as I am about finding the right funding model to allow us to do the right care at the right time for the right patient so that we're getting the best health outcomes. And fee-for-service to me does not allow for that. And so I'm not a big proponent of it. I've just seen it so much. It's, it, it creates siloing and has us wanting to churn as much care for whatever it is our siloed care is. I'm a, sure. If I'm a diabetic educator, I want to see as many diabetic patients and do diabetic education on them as possible, whether or not they need it or not. I, you know, like I'm like, and it, you can go through the whole, you know, pick your specialty, you know, and there is, you know, as much as we all want to say that we're altruistic and we only do the things that are needed, humans are biased and humans, you know, sure. pick up what, what the incentives are and it will drive our behavior every time. So coming back to something that we talked about and we'll, we'll wrap up in a few minutes here, uh, Dr. Jarvie, how do you think the ACO model has performed and, and a little quick little backdrop. So I mentioned 2005, sold my company at that time, went to go work on a PhD, just so happened to be at Dartmouth um, where uh, Elliot Fisher was <coughs> and he's kind of like one of the fathers of ACE. So we were doing our PhD seminars on this whole model, right? So 2006, 2007, the idea of we're gonna align these incentives, we're going to have uh, a focus on quality, we're going to reduce costs, or at least slow the inflation, cost inflation. Um, and I've looked at it, I've studied it now for 10 years. What is your assessment of how that model has, and we could even stick with just the CMS, not the kind of like Cigna collaborative care and all of those, but what is your assessment of, of how that model has performed? I mean, it is not as well as they would have liked it to. I, I can definitely say that much. It's, um, you know, I, I think there's opportunity. Like, I think the thought process behind it was a good idea. I think, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the conversation already. Most large organizations, that percent of the population that will fit into those Medicare CMS models is just not large enough to actually change behavior holistically within an organization. So they're, they're trying to do, do things to improve the care off the side of their desk, so to speak, instead of wholesale changing the delivery system in which they're operating. Um, and you know, value-based care and fee-for-service care are about as similar as, 
a Winnebago and a Porsche. I mean, they're they're not, you know, <laughs> you know, you're, they're not the same. You know, yes, they both have wheels that go on the road. Right. They are not right. the same things. And I think we have to, you know, you're not going to just some someday, you know, iteratively turn the Porsche into a Winnebago. It's just not going to happen. You have to wholesale change what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I'll give you my assessment. Um, one, I think that there is some spillover, right? So if you're focusing on diabetes because it's a CMS initiative for a Medicare population, then there will be some spillover into the rest of your care. Absolutely. So that's a good thing. The second thing is, I think that it's changed. If we go back to 2010, around that time frame, it's changed the conversation to have people thinking about value, right? Instead of, regardless of what the actual model is in your Winnebago Porsche, um, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> that analogy is perfect. Um, that at least it's got people thinking about, look, we've got to focus on something more than just the number of office visits. So, um, you know, whether or not there has been a full-blown Kuhnian paradigm shift, I don't know that that's, that's, the, that's the case, but at least it's got people thinking differently. The third thing that I would say is, is that when you do the math and you look at these models, specifically the, the um, ACO model, and you look at the incentives for the, for the doctors to actually you know, get some additional money by performing extremely well, the dollars per doctor, per physician are really, really small and marginal. And so um, from that standpoint, it's almost like the incentives, I, don't, I, just, I just don't see it. I don't see how, how um, a physician group is going to want to be able to track to those metrics versus all of the work that goes into putting in the technology, making sure that you're tracking, you're submitting your results right. and so on and so forth, it seems to be prohibitive. So that's my sense. This is an interview. I shouldn't be giving too much of my my opinions, but that's how that's how I see it. I I, I think you're you're dead on. I, and I, you know, it's not. So I I do like the ACL model in the in the sense that it's one piece of the puzzle. So you know we're our ACO, we're performing much better on our ACO overall, you know, based on what we can tell, not based on what CMS has said yet. But we, when we, since we moved to our risk contracts with our other payers, but again, it's like that's one piece of the population. You need to have enough population that you're doing that for to make the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. And it's really what you were saying before. If I'm going to redo all of my analytics infrastructure and redo my workflows to capture the data the way I need it to and redo everything, the, how I'm thinking, I, there needs to be enough incentive for that to happen. And the only right. way I see that happening is getting a very significant percentage of your population under, uh, under some kind of a risk arrangement and something more than paid for performance. It's, you know, it doesn't have to be full risk, but at least upside risk where there's enough of an incentive with, if you're, if you're upside, that you're, it's going to be worth going after. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, Dr. Jarvie, it was a pleasure in our last conversation. It's a pleasure to speak with you here. 
on Healthcare Rounds. I really appreciate your taking some time um, to talk to me. And I'm sure that our listeners are, are going to think this is a treat. If anything, the uh, the Winnebago Porsche. <laughs> no, Uh, It was was a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you so much. On behalf of all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. Healthcare Rounds is produced and engineered by me, Sam Yates, with theme music by John Marchica. Darwin Research Group leverages the power of information to enhance human health by providing advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. Check us out at darwinresearch.com. See you next round.